Welcome back to Following Noadon, a Stormlight podcast. This week, we are continuing our trek through chapters 44 through 51, ending part three of The Way of Kings. We will be talking about Kaladin and his flashback chapters in this this episode. If you want to hear about our thoughts on the Shallan chapters specifically, that is last week's episode, so you can go check that one out. But this week is all about Kaladin. Uh, Elliot, talk to me about your two words for Kaladin. So my two words for this series of chapters were betrayal and honor. Betrayal and honor. Uh, Paul, talk to me. All right. For my two words, I went with one word. I felt that the word that best described this these chapters altogether is selfless selfless good i understand i understand uh why you why you say that let's let's discuss these Alrighty. Selfless. Talk to me about selfless, Paul. So for a few reasons and for very different reasons, I would say, um, starting the, all the Kaladin stuff, we see almost like a Hunger Games scenario where um, Kaladin's brother Tian is drafted, effectively drafted into the military. Mm-hmm. And what does Kaladin do? He can't let that happen. Just whatever he has made his mind up that he's going to become a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, he is volunteering in Tian's place to join the military. And he actually doesn't take his place. This is the whole thing there, you know? Not very fun. So they both go. Um, but that was a very selfless thing of him to do. As well as later on, I don't actually want to want to bring it up yet, but uh, Kaladin earns quite a prize, I will say, and ends up giving it away and not even not even being concerned. And that was an incredibly selfless thing to do. We will certainly be talking about that later. Don't you worry. Yeah, it's just a casual prize, you know. Yeah, just just a kingdom. <laughs> on the on the floor doesn't doesn't want to pick it up yeah uh elliot talk to me about your two words so mine are mine are pretty related actually despite them sounding rather different betrayal and honor way back in in part one the the part one section of of way of kings my my theme or what we talked about a lot coming out of that was was honor and i felt like some of these chapters kind of harkened back to that and brought up some of the same discussions of what is honorable, and then we see a, an example in Amaram of him coming across as honorable first, and then having a pretty big betrayal moment that where he he proves himself not to be as honorable as we as we thought he was. But then there's some other hints of of honor as well. I thought of honor when Kaladin had his Hunger Games moment, as you call it, Paul, and and volunteered or tried to volunteer to take Tien's point. 
that that's the first time I think we've seen Kaladin step up, young Kaladin, and do something honorable. He's he's kind of been processing and thinking a lot of these thoughts as a young boy, but this is the first like him really stepping up and you know being a man moment. And I thought that was very honorable of him, even though honor is maybe not something I would attribute to maybe some someone of his age. But I, I thought about it there. And then briefly, we got a glimpse of Adolin. He had a little cameo in in this section where he does he something rather honorable. So. There was kind of a, a theme running through these ones of of honorable of honor culminating in, of course, betrayal. So, I want to talk about honor before we move move on completely from it. The so we end with chapter fifty one, and the last, the next we see Kaladin in the timeline is back in chapter two. Chapter two, it is eight months since this battle that is going on in chapter 51 and chapter uh, 47. And it's eight months later, and the title of the chapter in chapter 2 is Honor is Dead. And that is when Kaladin is in the slave wagon, and he's being all moody in front of all the slaves, and now, Dejected, we, now yeah. we understand why. So uh, Honor is a good, uh, good word for this. All right, let's talk about the Hunger Games moment, as you guys have coined it. <laughs> chapter Chapter 44. It starts off with Kaladin and Tien laying on the roof in the rain um, in the weeping. And Elliot, you uh, you have on the, on the outline the weeping, and you were wondering what that was. Uh, has it mentioned that before, and we just didn't know what it was yet? Yeah, there's been there's been more than one reference to the weeping, and just from context, it was pretty clear that weepings were referred to basically as years. Okay. They they'd mentioned like a child at, only at their fourth weeping or something like that. You know, it's that kind of statement where you can pretty clearly assume it's a it's an event or some kind of marking of time. Up until now, though, I had no clue really what that was, and I was really curious what this event was that they marked their time by, and we'd get a, a very clear description of it here in this chapter of the weeping being this constant rainstorm that comes at a, a very set time each year, but it's not like a high storm and that it's this hurricane-level mow-your-house-down kind of storm. It's more of a light, just kind of drizzly rain, basically, for an extended period of time. Which Kaladin actually has an interesting chapter where he's kind of comparing the two of them and how he likes the high storm for its energy and its get-stuff-done sort of thing. And he doesn't like the weeping because he gets depressed, I think, during the, the weepings. The weeping brings along that you know overcast skies, brings out the depression in him. But yep. the the weeping, now we know what it is. For sure. And there's there's a nice moment between Tien and Kaladin and his family, which, if you think back to it, this is the last time that Kaladin's family is all together. Kaladin, Tien, his mom, and his dad are all end up all on top of the roof here, and they're all just laying on their backs talking about life. And little do they know, in an hour, Tien and Kaladin will be split. And um, it's just a nice, like, it, it warms my heart to think that Kaladin is laying on the roof all depressed and uh, being a little dramatic. And Tien walks up there and does the same thing. And 
he has this line where he squints his eyes. He's like, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to look straight up into the to the rain, Kaladin. What are you, what are you doing? And Kaladin laughs at him, and then um, his family joins him, and then uh, Amaram walks into, uh, walks into their their to their lives and messes things up. Well, it's not really Amram's fault at this point. It's more Rashon's fault. But Tien gets drafted into the army at Rashon's request. And there's this whole technicality of how Kaladin can't be uh can't be put into the army because he's going to be the the surgeon's apprentice and he's uh independent of such a such a calling. And then, He's too important. Yeah, vital. Correct. And then, but Tien isn't, and so Rashon puts Tien's name down to spite Kaladin's family, and then Kaladin ends up going with Tien to make sure he doesn't die. Um. So, there's a there's a double meaning to the weeping, I suppose. Didn't even think of that, but that's that's pretty. <laughs> It's a. It really is the weeping, you know. Which, if you think about it, yeah, that this event probably makes the weeping even more significant or or dark for Kaladin, because now going forward, that probably reminds him of this this event every time it comes around. Yep. There's. Tien was always there to cheer him up during the weepings, and he is no longer. Yep. I love that you point out the the family moment that they had before that because that's another thing where reading it the first time you don't realize that's what that is. That's right. their last moment as a family, and it is a heartwarming thing. But then when you read it back the second time, you you realize, oh, this is this is it. This is the last little family moment that they have. So it it means a lot more the second time around. Yeah, for sure. It it'll highlight this later, but Kaladin does have a good supporting family structure whether he whether his mind lets him think that or not his his family is very supportive of him and even like even if Liren is disappointed that Kaladin is joining the army he understands that he needs to be there to protect Tien so he lets him go well and contrast that to Shallan where we don't really know what her history is, but clearly something is very wrong with, with her, her family. family. And we, right. we can, we've, at least I've kind of assumed that a lot of that probably keys into a lot of the struggles that she's having and the, the, the darkness that we've kind of seen in her seems to be stemming from the troubles in her family. And I think you're absolutely right. Kaladin's family is, it's not perfect. It doesn't have, you know, everything lined up, but Kaladin did, did have a really good family. All right, let's talk about Rashon and Amaram together. So, Amar, so Rashon, I believe, is Amaram's cousin. I think we just, I think we find that out in chapter fifty-one. Kaladin mentions that, and Amaram doesn't remember Tien. Uh, but Amaram shows up to look for volunteers and doesn't find any. So Rashon just gives him a list of boys to call on and they're required to go and up until this point Kaladin's family thought they were going to win they 
with the whole the whole conflict with Rashon, they thought they were going to Kaladin was going to go off to Carbronth. They were going to be fine. Uh, Tien was going to be a carpenter's apprentice, and it was all going to uh, it was all going to work out. And then all of a sudden, the entire thing's ripped in two. Uh, and Amram's kind of at the heart of that, even if he doesn't intend for that to happen in that way, because as far as we know, at this point, Amram is an honorable general. He just needs men for the army. That's completely understandable. And he's... Kaladin may un... Kaladin may put some of the blame on Amram because he's in this situation, even if Amram's not really to blame. In this situation specifically, like... You know it's Rashon, right? You know Rashon is the one who's been mad at the at Kaladin's whole family, and and that this isn't just a coincidence that Tien was called. Um, but yeah, like you said, we don't really think anything about Amaram yet as as being bad. We're like, oh my goodness, like why did Rashon have to have to do that? Like that was the lowest blow, like worst thing he could have done. And it's very sad. Um, hence the weeping, right? Right. Um, but at this point, at least like all of my disdain is towards Rashon and not Amaram. Like, yeah, he's just, you know, they need more men. Understandable. Yeah. You know. Not yet. At least. Maybe maybe in a few chapters. Yeah, as of right now, understandable. He's just the recruiter guy, you know. Well, I think I I'd go even further when I read this this chapter. I mean, when you see Amram standing there compared next to Rashon, Amram seems positively honorable. He I immediately put him up there in the class with Dalinar and Adolin. This seems like to be, you know, oh Rashon is kind of the one off, dirty bag you know, light eyes guy. Here comes, you know, an actual light eyes who does have honor. And he even almost tries to point out, you know, Oh cousin, you're kind of being petty here. Can we, do we not have to do this? And Rashawn, no, absolutely. You have to take him. Amram, you know, reassures Lear and says, you know, don't worry, I'll take care of him kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like I like this guy right off the bat. I definitely am thinking, Oh, okay. I can get behind this guy. This is, this is going in a direction. I like little did I know. The, The entire concept of light eyes, as far as Kaladin's concerned, at this point in chapter 44, is Amram. Amram is what Rashon should be. He is the honorable light eyes. He shows up with all the pomp and demands the respect that Rashon should. And exactly. This is this is what the light eyes are supposed to be. This is Dalinar. This is Adolin. And turns out later no but because at this point kaladin has been presented with so many light eyes that have let him down the fact that amram at at the end of this uh at the end of part three will be like not only let him down but quite literally backstab him uh answers the questions on why kaladin hates all light eyes he he refuses to believe anymore that there are good light eyes in the world after this. 
as far as we know, like at this point, he hasn't. Does he know other light eyes at all? Like, like he knows Rashon, and he definitely doesn't like Rashon. And he knows Amram, and then he definitely doesn't like Amram after a while. He knows Laurel, and but so... Laurel's also turned his turned her back on him. True, true. That's more of a heartbreak thing, and not necessarily malicious. Sure, uh, but definitely not a good experience that he looks back on on fondly. Uh, so yeah, so we we get a lot more perspective as to why Kaladin can't stand light eyes, uh, which I think is really important. So I guess you could say that Kaladin's chapters may have done more. Or may have served more as a world-building tool than Shallan's chapters for, for Shalon a chapters, Yes. Yes. Yeah. As far as this episode, yeah, I think you're right. It's true. We do learn about the weepings. We learn more about light eyes and dark eyes, and yeah. Okay, I'll give you that. I I was definitely waiting for the other shoe to drop as far as Kaladin's view of light eyes because current day Kaladin, it's very clear. He hates Light Eyes with a passion. There's even a segment in one of these chapters where Syl even says, you're not you around Light Eyes. It's like a different Kaladin, which I, I noticed and thought that that seemed very telling. But the past Kaladin, we've we've only slowly seen him kind of build up this, this resentment for Light Eyes. And even up till the very last chapter, even up until... You know, Tian's already dead. He still seems to be holding on to this thread of light eyes are still okay. He even thinks, you know, part of why he rushes in the battle to go defend Amram is because he thinks that Amram is someone worth defending. And so I'm reading these thinking something is still has to happen that breaks this for, for Kaladin. Something still has to occur that is going to cause Kaladin to have this permanent scar. And lo and behold, it comes right at the end of part three. So I guess on these earlier Kaladin chapters, we we get kind of the the background, the little little history about Kaladin and, and why he kind of works the way he works almost. Um, and then we get quite the amount of uh, major events happening too, which we'll get to. And I'm really excited to get to those. Um, which one? dive on in i mean most notably we find out that kaladin kills Shardbearer. yes he does and that was pretty awesome and that was part of why i my word was selfless was he kills a shard bear and then just like doesn't take the shard blade or plate he's like eh Eh, I'll, I'll just pass on that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I couldn't... I I was sitting there just like, please, like, Kaladin, just take it. Like, <laughs> go on. And he doesn't. And then a whole lot of stuff happens. But I guess what, what we're... I, I want to know, especially Elliot, like, what your initial thought was with that whole oh, yeah. scenario. Because that was just enormous. It really was. And I felt... You described it so perfectly right there of he's just killed the shard bearer. Epic. Another epic battle scene. He takes down the shard bearer and the, the shard blade is laying there on the ground and I'm just sitting there 
thinking to myself, take it, like, come on, Kaladin, just do it. You you can bring honor to that that shard blade. But we we all know very well that he didn't because modern Kaladin does not have a shard blade, but you still just want him so bad to pick up that shard blade. It's like, come on. And he doesn't do it. But I I was both surprised and not surprised by this this whole chapter with him taking on the shard bear because this is actually sort of kind of something I predicted beforehand. It and is. I honestly don't quite know how I, I picked up on this earlier on. I can't point you to anything, you know, concrete in the chapters we read before about why I, I thought this was coming, but I felt very sure that he was going to take down a shard bearer, and sure enough, he does. My my theory, though, was that he was then going to be denied by the light eyes, the, the shard blade, which is not what happens. Amaram is standing there telling him to take the blade, Correct. And Kaladin doesn't do it. So it's not the light eyes that deny him the blade. It's Kaladin himself who denies him the blade. And that was a this was another pivotal moment. We've had a lot of pivotal moments in the last few few chapters, but this was another one of Kaladin basically looking at that blade and seeing everything that he hates about light eyes in it and just not being able to bring himself to pick up that blade and take on. At least I think that's the way he feels about it of, of joining them almost he can't do it mm -hmm. and that's a that's an interesting character point for him yeah he's at, at least you know he practices what he preaches right yeah he's he refuses to turn into all of these light eyes that he dis despises to the point where he will not take the shard blade because it will quite literally turn his eyes light and he is so prejudiced against all light eyes to the point where he refuses to do it because he's afraid of becoming one of them. Cal I'm learning that Kaladin is a very all or nothing kind of guy. And he lives that in, in all the moments that we see him, he is all in or not at all. And that's, I think that's just who he is. Yeah. He's, When he's about to grab the shard blade and Amaram is telling him to take it and then fast forward to 51 where he again asks Kaladin why aren't you taking the shard blade and Kaladin can't really give him a straight answer because he doesn't really know why he doesn't I I don't I don't think he does give an answer honestly no, he, he says exactly that. He says, well, he, in his mind, he's processing it as, I can't bring myself to join you, so I can't take it. But he right. doesn't say that because he doesn't want to have to try and explain that to Amram. He just says, I can't tell you why. Right. And so Amram interprets that as, I'm unsure as to why I don't want this, so I'm refusing it now, but I might change my mind later. And Amram interprets that as, okay, I have to kill you now so that you don't come after me later because I'm taking this for myself because I can't give it to your lowly spearman over there. I guess maybe I was under the wrong impression. Uh, Elliot had mentioned that, you know, that his theory that, like, maybe he killed a shard bear and it was denied by the by by a lot eyes in some way mm -hmm. and whenever he just restated that n n just now 
I thought, well, Kaladin did choose not to take it, but if he had, would he have been denied? Because as far as I remember, Amaran said, you know, like, I can't have, you know, a bridge crewman, like, with the shard blade and plate, you know, like, uh, it needs to be with someone who, who knows, who's been trained and knows what's going on. So I guess I was under the impression that if Kaladin did take it, they kind of would have, like, forced his hand, like, forced it out of his hand even. Um, but I guess maybe but, I maybe I understood that incorrectly. I, I don't know that you misunderstood anything there. I think my, my thought on that, though, would be, I don't know that they'd be able to. Like, they might Correct. want to. If, if Kaladin took that shard blade, they probably would want to say, oh, he's just a, a lowly squad leader. We can't let him, him have it. But at that point, what are they going to do about it? He's got a shard blade that he can summon anytime he wants. If they come after him, assuming they don't, you know, kill him in his sleep or something like that, he's going to take him down because he's got a shard blade now, which is why I wanted him so badly to pick that thing up. <laughs> right. Excellent point. Excellent point. Yeah, that that is what it comes down to. Is Amram's legs were like broke? Like I think they were mm-hmm. broken from yeah. laying under his horse. What's Amram gonna do? if Kaladin just grabs the shard blade right then. There's when he does kill the shard bearer, backing up a little bit, I love the descriptive passage of the actual battle between Kaladin and the shard bearer. There's one there's one line where he swings his his spear and the shard bearer cuts the tip off the spear and Kaladin spins around and grabs the hilt of the the spearhead and keeps spinning and sh- and slams it into the to the slit the, the eye slit of the shard bearer like all in one movement so he like grabs it and keeps spinning i i i i could totally imagine that in a movie where i can i can visualize the slow motion shot in my in a movie you know, clear as day yep. it is it is clear as day on the screen in front of me exactly how this plays out in a movie it's very very visually depicted. Yeah, he, the the tip of it gets cut off. He swings and grabs it, and just wham! And then everything just freezes. I can wholeheartedly agree. I can say that the, in these episodes, over these chapters, there's definitely been a lot of stuff that would make me really excited for a movie, like the oh, scene yeah. we described with Shalon and the the symbol heads. Like that's something that I feel like I just have to see, almost like to. Because that was just such a dramatic scene, and there's so much imagery and so much stuff going on, uh, that would make for a really incredible like movie clip. I, I want to bunny trail on that for for just a second, Trevor. You can cut oh, me boy. off in sixty seconds when I'm when I'm done when I'm going too long on this. But at, at some point in the future, I do hope that we get a chance to do a movie episode. Maybe when we're done with this, you know, Way of Kings, come back and talk about what a movie of this book would look like. But some of those thoughts as we're, we're talking about some of these recent chapters we've read that are all really epic. As much as I can visualize all of these in a movie, I think this would be incredibly difficult because there's so many different types of scenes. And to depict them all together, you know, the, the romance of Capsule and Shallan, the, the politics, the, the history, the, the drama of the poisoning, then on top of all this action with flashback Kaladin and modern day Kaladin, that would be extremely challenging to cut into a cohesive movie. So I won't, I'll, I'll limit myself here as well. Cause we still got plenty to go, but <laughs> yeah, we gotta get back to the chapters. Um, I, 
I honestly, with our, like, definition of movie at the moment, I honestly don't think you can make a Way of Kings movie. There is too much that is all important, like, all of it's important, and all of it builds on each other, that, I mean, it's a 900-page book, and of course you're going to have to start cutting things out in a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour movie, but you can't, like pretty much all of it you have to put in the movie for it to have the impact that you want at the end which we'll get to but like with our common concept of what a movie is and how movie arcs work and what's what would actually be entertaining you can't make a six-hour movie like it just wouldn't it wouldn't work you'd have to make a tv show so i agree and then you could never fit the interludes into a movie, and that just kind of rules everything Correct. off your movie. So. <laughs> your favorite parts would be gone yeah. right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Sorry, tangent on on movie there, but that's okay. No. I we we certainly will do a dream movie episode later because I have I have plenty to talk about in a in a visual adaptation for the Way of Kings. Definitely, for sure. I have something that I want to circle back to right quick getting into these chapters is Trevor be- briefly mentioned we got a a little reappearance from one of our Colin kids and I thought that was really awesome. Adolin? Um yes, with we see Adolin mm-hmm. and I thought that was really awesome. I kinda like that was honestly it wasn't the biggest event that happened, but it kind of gave me like a moment while listening to it. I was like, Oh shoot. Like I knew it was coming. Like it described like, I don't remember the exact description, but I was like, Oh, that's like gotta be one of Delinar's boys, like either Adolin or Renarin. Right. And I got really like super happy about that. And I thought that was awesome. My, my favorite part about that scene is Adolin calls him bridge boy. He, he Adolin is so arrogant and he's just casual about it that even, even if Kaladin isn't that young, he's 19. So that's decently young, but it's described Kaladin as, you know, been, being able to grow facial hair and needs to shave that type of thing. And he, Adolin just turns and sees Kaladin's the only person on the street left. And he's like, Hey, bridge boy, come here. Uh, it's just such a such a good Adolin description, even though you're not from his perspective. You know it's Adolin. I, you do see that, but I also liked how, you know, I felt like Adolin. I mean, maybe I just have a really positive like view of Adolin and, and Renarin. Mm-hmm. But he he seemed like you know cool with with Kaladin. He didn't just like uh some bridge crew guy like oh sure He was. He gave him more money than yeah. you know. Kaladin almost knew what to do with it. it was like a, I don't remember exactly. Was it an emerald? Bro, an emerald whatever bro. it was. Yeah, it was like a big one or whatever. And yep. and that that meant a lot to or that means a lot to a Bridgman especially. And and I thought that was awesome just to see him treating a bridge crew member nicely. Honestly, just a random bridge crew member just on a casual interaction so i think it's I, the, I, I think it's less that he's giving him a lot of money because he cares about kaladin and that it's his pocket change that two two weeks of kaladin's 
salary is literally he literally tosses it on the ground. He doesn't give it to him. He and he doesn't follow up with Kaladin later to make sure he did it. He just tosses it on the ground. <laughs> yeah, this is the moment when I talked about before that Syl mentions that Kaladin is not himself around light eyes. I totally agree that there's not really anything in here that I I think Adolin mistreats Kaladin. He's he's definitely looking down on him, but he's not being mean to him oh, in any sure. way. And yet Kaladin still takes it as how dare that that light eyes look down on me and has this very adverse reaction to it anyway. So this is actually one thing that made me honestly dislike Kaladin a little more. I mean, I understand his his dislike for light eyes. And especially with Trevor mentioning that, I honestly didn't think about that as an indicator of how big a light eyes or especially Adolin's pocket change would be. He just throw, tosses this emerald brown. Uh, but Kaladin is very like kind of conniving and and still just not. He doesn't have the option almost in his mind that that there could ever be a, a better light eyes and sure and and to be fair, if we didn't know Adolin, if this was some random light eyes, we probably would have thought less of him. Um, but Adolin's a sweet sweetheart kind of <laughs> and <laughs> or more so than a lot of the others and and so i honestly kind of i didn't like lose respect for kaladin but I, I was a little like come on like relax take a deep breath like it's okay it's it's um, safe to say that he's prejudiced like and it's he doesn't he doesn't hide it at all he openly thinks that there are no good light eyes and there will never ever be good light eyes that's what he thinks agree kaladin has a lot of very admirable traits but this is not one of them correct so for ready i want to go back to the beginning of chapter 46 actually that was the end of chapter 46 yep the beginning of chapter 46 I I felt like a little bit of a of a detective trying to trying to piece together the path of of my my suspect. At the beginning of 46, Kaladin's is he dreaming? Is that what's going on here? He yeah. is dreaming. He's dreaming. He's dreaming that he is a high storm and he passes over the entirety of Roshar from from end to end. And I, I'm loving the fact that I have my my big old map with me. It's been it was super handy as I was reading this this chapter. I I got up from where I was reading when I came across this, and I walked over to this wall and I and I looked at my map and I kind of traced Kaladin's path as he was passing over Roshar because we get descriptions of a lot of these some places that we've seen and some places that we haven't seen. But it all leads up to an interesting moment. And I think it's important, it's probably important to figure out where Kaladin is because it will tell us where Zeth is. Where Zeth is, correct. At the at the end of this sequence, Kaladin sees Zeth, Paul, your your favorite white cloaked assassin. And he it doesn't say it's Zeth, but it, it's obviously Zeth. And I will spoil it for you. It's Zeth. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> What? 
Spoiler alert. But I immediately, as I'm reading this, thinking, oh, where is he? Where is he? Because we, we, where we left Zeth was at a pretty big cliffhanger, and I'm wondering where he's at. And so as I was piecing this out, I, I read through this section, and I, I, it started in, he's over the Shattered Plains. Uh, Kaladin sees the Shattered Plains. Then he moves over to Alethkar. Okay, we, we've seen Alethkar before. We know where that is. He then sees the the Horn Eater Peaks, which is cool. We've heard reference of, of those, and they're they're on the map right uh, right behind me and right next to, uh, in between uh, Alethkar and, and Yakovet, if I remember right. Correct. I'll see if I can do also without turning around and looking at my map. And then and then after that, he goes to Sigzil's Land, which I think is Azir. I don't know that it, it said that specifically, but there was enough clues to piece that together. That's the kind of deserty. Uh, section if you if you have a map that you can pull up i would highly recommend it there's a there's a deserty grayish i'll put gray, i'll put tan. it on the screen for him yeah, oh perfect on the what would be the southwest side of, of roshar that he passes over then he passes into a land that he describes as the people have faint blue veins and that's all we get in that section but my detective kicked in later on because later in, in this chapter when he's talking to Sigzil, Sigzil talks about these people who have blue veins, and he names that land as Bab- Babatharnum. Babatharnum. I was I was kind of dreading you putting that one in the in the spell check because that was kind of a funny name. I was fully uh, prepared for that. <laughs> I just didn't think we had time for a uh, spell check this we, week. Yeah, we, we we don't. Babatharnum. So that's right, just kind of to the north of. Of Azir, so so we've we travel all the way across Roshar, Azir, Babatharnam. Bear with me, we're almost there. The next land that we get to, we don't get a name for it, but he does mention that the people there are golden-haired. If you go all the way back to the interlude chapter with Axes, can I can Axes, I inter- can I interrupt here for a second? Yes, I'm very proud of you here. This is this is some <laughs> this is some deep dive stuff. This is this is I, good. I told you, I felt like a detective as I'm piecing back there. Oh, he was here, and then he was there. Oh, and then he was there. Axes. Axes is in Erie. Yep. Erie's the name of the country, right? I forget the name of Eerie. the town that mm-hmm. he's he's in. But Erie is like the northwestern corner of Oshar, back up here in the, the top, like yeah, up there. North of Shinovar. Yes, exactly. So... I'm concluding, and Babatharnam is right, like just south of, of Erie. So it makes total sense. He went to Azir, traveled through Babatharnam into Erie, where the golden haired people are, which Axes told us that the Erie have um, golden hair. This is where Kaladin runs into Zeth. And I know I'm talking for way too long here, but Zeth. I'm enjoying it. We don't know exactly where. We don't know exactly what he's doing or he killed someone because that's what his, he's been tasked with doing. So we don't know who he killed or, or why this is important. But all of this to say, I, I want I can conclude that Zeth is in Eerie right now. Can can I yeah. get a round of applause for Elliot, <laughs> please? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I have to say I am thoroughly impressed. I'm glad Trevor briefly interrupted and I, I <laughs> I'm very impressed um so I listened to this and I did not come up with any of that <laughs> um, but wow that that's some good information honestly and the amount of references you're able to make there and you even you even said the the name of the place right Baba Tharnum, mm-hmm. I believe yep and everything wow just nail on the head I like, I'm a little, a little proud of myself right. for that one. 
And, and then my immediate thought on that, though, is, okay, if Zeth is an Eerie, that's quite a ways from where we last saw him. Last we saw him, he was in, I don't remember what it's called, but it's close to Yakaved. Starts with the starts with the B, the bad the Bavlands. It's south of Yakaved. It's like on the mountains yeah, there. Yeah. Yep. So that's that's a pretty far away place from Erie. So Zeth has traveled quite a ways. And I don't know that we have any any clues as to like time scale of, of any of this. Maybe the maybe Zeth has had a lot of time to travel or whatnot, but Zeth's covering a lot of ground. Yep. We We're about to meet him again here in these next interludes so he'll be he'll be somewhere else Ooh. so that was it that was my massive theory paper on Zeth. <laughs> on where zeth is <laughs> yes that's where like in the world the... is zeth where in the world that... is zeth son son Valinol? we made the connection before about like our predictions being like the board with all the strings everywhere the and string. i feel i feel like that's how this was yeah um, but much more factual than just like guessing and making connections so very impressed and i always love finding out more about zeth and yeah i'm extremely curious to know why he's out in Erie or what's going on there i'm also super curious i mean kind of a side note on the golden haired we've seen mention of that before where their hair is like actually gold like golden yeah and it's like kind of a valuable thing at least somewhat mm -hmm. yeah um and we've seen mention of that and that it's like not just blonde but like literally golden and i think that's really cool and and i'm curious to see more about that maybe we'll run into axes again at some point um the only the only place well one of the only places that Kaladin didn't mention seeing was the Pure Lake, which is where Ishik is. So, so sorry, Paul, we haven't seen Ishik yet again. <laughs> I was thinking about that too. I was gonna say brief mention, especially because next week we're we're looking into interludes, and I cannot wait. Um, <laughs> with yeah, I was I was actually gonna bring up Ishik for a second. Ishik and Axes, if I remember correctly, are like the two interlude characters that we've seen that were kind of dropped in and don't like Numbalot for example we know is part of Shalon's family so we know where that correlation is and Zeth has been relatively reoccurring <laughs> I'm unsure off the top of my head yes I think there might be one more that we haven't seen they have, we haven't had a repeat of but uh, yes you're right that we, we had that one from, from Risen but that's that one is. tied into the that one tied into the Zeth storyline fairly well because sure. we learned some some history about the the Shin Shinovar and the Shin and Zeth in that so that was a bit tied in so I'm I'm with you Paul Axes and yeah was definitely the and Ishik are the very out of place ones that we can't really place much yet and from what I've learned is that they're not just gonna be like one time mentioned they've got to come back right they've got to have some some at least mentioned or at least of that place and so i'm curious to see how they get intertwined somehow some way um so I, i'm excited to see about that all that to say kaladin saw zeth <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, kaladin was... saw zeth in a dream that and and it hinted that zeth saw kaladin mm-hmm Zeth looks straight at him and 
kind of waved actually, and then uh, <laughs> Kaladin woke up. Which I I gotta say, that could be some serious foreshadowing for your biggest theory right now, Paul, about a a Kaladin and and Zeth meeting or an intersection of their storylines. This could definitely be a little hinting at that. How does I mean, how do they see each other if Kaladin's I mean, just dreaming? I am super glad that you mentioned that, Ellie. I was just about to say that 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 kind of plays into or maybe hints at there may be some kind of greater thing going on here and that's in some way they'll meet. My I guess just a reminder, my current prediction on that is that Zeth is going to in some way have to assassinate or run into Kaladin and then Kaladin is going to something will happen and this this could be that event perhaps like oh I've seen you in this dream like I know something's up kind of thing and then I think that Kaladin is going to help Zeth get freed from his Oathstone or at least take control and be like well you're like set free effectively but either way, I'm really hoping for a Zeth Kaladin meetup in some way. And this was kind of that tidbit, that like glimmer mm-hmm. of hope that, oh, that might be right. Like, please. And and I'm really hopeful with that. I will I will note that Kaladin isn't important enough to get assassinated yet. But that might change if people figure out he's a, he's surge binding. There are, however other people on the Shattered Plains that are important enough to get assassinated, so, like, Elokar. Um, so, they might run into each other even if they're not looking for each other. Exactly. And how do you take down a Surge Binder? With a more experienced Surge Binder, right? So, <laughs> wouldn't that mean Zeth would beat Kaladin? Yes, but oh, like I, I, was I forgot it, you're cheering for Zeth. I, f- I forgot you're on the <laughs> Zeth train. <laughs> I am on Team Zeth if we if we have to pick one. But I, I was saying that that would be a way that they, you know, maybe they get intertwined somehow. You know, Kalan's got plot armor; he won't die. <laughs> so not too worried about that. I mean, Zeth's got a shard blade, so that's certainly got to give him a bit of an advantage. But. Kaladin has taken down a shard bear before, so who's to say he couldn't do it again? True. Very good point. They're kind of pushing us along through 46. There are three kind of offhand comments that nothing kind of comes of them in 46, but I do want to highlight them to make sure you guys caught them. Sigzil is a world singer, as Rock puts it. Yeah, and I don't think they define it, but Sigzil is not happy that they figured out that he's a world singer, and it kind of just ends there. So remember that. Um, can I say a thought on that real quick? Sure. I I noted that for sure as well, and I think Rock describes it a little bit as someone who travels the world, telling stories of other places. I kind of got the impression to, you know, help people understand about other other lands. It sounded like a very positive thing to me. Mm-hmm. It sounded like, you know, oh, he's a world singer. Like, oh, okay, you're a traveling bard that goes around and educates other people. Great. But then Signal Sigzel seems very defensive or embarrassed or not thrilled, like you said that they have discovered that. So that doesn't seem to fit. 
uh, I don't know. Some clues, but no answers there. I also wanted to say something on that. I I agree. I felt the exact same way. I was like, a world singer. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. Like, I want to be a world singer. And he, he gets to tell about all these, like, mystical faraway places where all this other crazy stuff happens. And, and yeah, and he's, like, really ashamed of that. And I don't know. I guess I'm going to need another Shalon world-building chapter to, <laughs> to figure out why that is. No, but we're into Kaladin world-building chapters now. Yeah, Shalon action oh, chapters. True. We need another Kaladin <laughs> world-building chapter. Yep, there you go. And then we'll understand world singers. So, All right. What else did you have, Trevor? The second one is this trial parchment that has joined Bridge 4, which is mentioned in... 49 i believe um they name him shen because he doesn't uh he doesn't really speak but they need a name for him so they call him shen and he's kind of just there so far and he hasn't really done anything but he will later so don't worry yeah what are what are i'm curious to know what elliot's initial thoughts are about a parchment being added to the bridge crew. I'm I'm very much in the same mental processing space as some of the other bridgemen in the story. When they when they introduce him as okay, this parchment is joining your your bridge crew, my first thought, which they talk about is how's that gonna go down with the Parshendi? What are they gonna do when they see a parchment charging at them carrying a bridge what is the parchment going to do when he's charging into battle and sees the 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 parshendi on the other side is there is that going to is that going to affect how they react to someone are they just going to ignore each other i don't know and then i'm also asking about this new there's the new bright lord that's in charge of the bridge crews although he seems to be a little bit of a pawn for his wife his wife mm-hmm. yeah who seems to really be the one running the show and it's it's clear that she has very specifically placed this parchment in bridge four which maybe that's an attempt to sabotage them or maybe he's a spy for her but i think kaladin even thinks about this of oh he can't be a spy parchment don't process things on that level there's there's no way he could do that but in the back of my brain i'm still thinking like well but maybe maybe she's found a way to manipulate this guy or or use him he might not be intentionally spying on them but she could be using him somehow to do that i don't know i don't i don't distrust the parchment himself i distrust why the bright bright lady whatever her name is brightness brightness there you go that's the word has has placed him there i think she's trying to sabotage kaladin it's not going to end well that's my thoughts Interesting. I do agree. I don't think I actually have faith in the parchment. Um, I don't necessarily think he's going to like sabotage a mission or anything like that, like a bridge run. But there's that like good chance still, I guess. Mm. It's like, what's going to happen? Like, what is going on here? Yep. And, and definitely like, if there's a bridge crew to be sabotaged, it would be Kaladin. It's going to be bridge right? four. Right. Yes. And so it's, it, they made it seem like an experimental thing, almost like we're going to see if this works so that maybe we could use Parchman 
almost. It's and... it's not necessarily a malicious thing either, because if you take this to its logical conclusion, if Shen doesn't care about carrying bridges, then couldn't you just use Parshman for all bridge crews? And the Parshendi probably wouldn't shoot at them since they're Parshman. So that could logically save Bridgman lives. This isn't necessarily a malicious act from the the light eyes. They're just throwing it on bridge four, see what happens. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, from what I know, I I can't believe that that will be all that happens. Um, they, I'm sure there's got to be something, right? Or what I'm hoping for is that we're going to learn a lot about Parshman and that Kaladin, you know, kind of just through building rapport with his group like he's done in the past. Maybe we'll learn a lot. Maybe, maybe Shen will start to talk and maybe we can figure out some stuff. That's my hope. That's exactly what I'm hoping happens as well, is that we can, by now getting to finally interact with a, a Parshman on a character-to-character -character level, we can learn more about them and maybe by extension the Parshendi as well. Maybe we'll get some answers to some of our questions, although based on our experience so far, I have a feeling we've got more questions in our future than answers. <laughs> that's just been the way things have gone so far. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Well, and it, it might sense. it might give you an answer to one question, but then in, in fight 10 more, so. Exactly. Yeah, in typical Way of King's fashion, he'll be able to talk and explain but not very well, and so it's just going to raise questions or something. Right. Um, and the biggest plot twist of all, adding it to my prediction board somewhere way over here, um, <laughs> the Parchman will have a shard blade. Wow. That's quite the prediction. That, Parchman, that was... not the Parshendi? Just to clarify? Shen will have a shard blade? Yes, yes, oh, Shen. Wow. Yeah, specifically. Yeah, I, that, that's not a very serious one, but, you know, <laughs> if Shalon can have one, like, it's fair. So why not? So this is probably a good time, Trevor, actually, for a new theory that I have. Sure. Is, as I was reading this chapter, and actually some of the Shalon chapters that we talked about before, a new a new theory kind of sprouted into my into my brain, having to deal with the the Parshendi, the Parshman, the Voidbringers, and the assassination of Gavilar. I'm fascinated by the Parshendi and why they're operating the way they are. The more we learn, the more confusing it gets. They don't seem to have a motive. It doesn't seem to make sense anything that they're that they're doing. They seem to have wanted to be sieged in the the shattered plains but they don't seem to be progressing the war towards any discernible goal they assassinated gavilar with no reason all of that i think is leading me to think that the parshendi are being used or manipulated by by someone or something i think something out there is is manipulating them and some more evidence i've i've seen for that they seem to be very simple folk we, we got a chapter before where they were kind of analyzing the Parshendi and from the from the what they saw it seemed like they don't they don't fight like soldiers they don't have the the discipline and the the tactics that an army does like the like the Alethi army does they right. seem to be more like villagers who've been handed a weapon and told to go fight they just happen to be very physically um, 
gifted. That's not really the right way to phrase that. They're they're physically superior to the Alethi. They're they're bigger. They're stronger. They they can fight better. They have armor built into their skin, all that kind of stuff. So they they stand up to the Alethi even though they're not disciplined. And yet they have these intricate weapons. We learn in the Shalon chapter that they have these like beautifully carved and engraved weapons. I wonder if someone has given them these weapons. Someone has come and said, oh, hey, all you villager farmer types, here's a bunch of weapons. Go murder this king and go fight all these people for some unknown reason. And I'm going to go even further with this. If you remember all the way back to, I get the prelude and the prologue confused. I think it's the prologue where Zeth... Uh, the prologue is where is where is that? The prelude is five thousand years ago. Yes, prologue. Zeth assassinates Gavilar. Gavilar gives Zeth an item, and it's a small orb that glows with what Zeth describes as a black light. It's almost like it glows with light, but it's darkness. It's not light. Given all that we've learned up until now, that seems to be describing. Uh, a sphere, just like we've seen with the rest of it. But instead of imbued with stormlight, it seems like it's been imbued with something else. And that something else, to me, <laughs> maybe thinks I'm I'm tying that somehow to the Voidbringers. They come from this other world. We've seen this. We've seen the Midnight Essence, which I'm kind of thinking is coming from the same world. They, they seem to have this darkness about them. I think that sphere came from the Voidbringers somehow. That darkness is tied to the Voidbringers. I think Gavilar got that sphere from the Parshendi. In the, in the Shalon chapters, we, there's a lot of talk about how Gavilar was so fascinated by the Parshendi, it almost like he figured something out, but he didn't tell anyone about it, or, or no one really knows. I think he learned something about that sphere, about what it was, and I think it's tied to someone who is manipulating and using the Parshendi, and I think that someone or something might be Voidbringers. That's my long-winded theory. Thoughts, I'm Paul? Just, I like. I don't know. My hats off to Elliot. This, this <laughs> episode, like, I need one of those Sherlock Holmes hats. I feel like I've been <laughs> Sherlock Holmes this whole episode of like picking up all the clues and, and tying them together. I'm mm. I'm gonna turn into the crazy alien conspiracy theorist guy. Him mixed with Sherlock Holmes, but yeah. And in comparison, me and Trevor combined are Watson to to, to, <laughs> to Elliot's. Uh, no, I'm the narrator. To... You're Watson. I know what's happening, and I, <laughs> okay, and I get okay, to talk okay. about you two. All right, I, I that's fair. Uh, but yes, I'm I'm incredibly impressed with that. And honestly, I didn't remember about that. What you said, like the dark gemstone, and now mm -hmm. I'm extremely, extremely interested in learning about that. Because there's got to be a purpose for that, right? Yep. Like, that can't just be a casual, like... Oh, that was it was very clear in the prologue that that was important somehow, and we haven't gotten any hints. I think Zeth may have actually mentioned Zeth, it briefly. Zeth talked about it once. Yeah, in the interlude. He did mention it once or something like that, but aside from that, we've had no hint of what in the world that thing is. Actually, we probably have, Trevor. You know, probably there's hints all over the place, but as first-time readers haven't picked up on anything... Uh, to hint at that. So I'm, I'm kind of going out on like four different limbs and then pulling them all together with this rather complex theory, but that's where, that's where I'm at. And I think it is good timing that we saw in the Shalon chapters about this kind of like almost dark world that we've seen and, and mm -hmm. kind of being confused about that because that gemstone that you described does not seem to be like 
anything of the world as we know. Exactly. So right. we need more Kaladin world building chapters again to <laughs> clarify that. Uh, but this was one of them for sure. That's that's my mind has been open to a lot of new possibilities in the past right 40, 40 minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right, not to not to open another can of worms, but there's one oh more. Let's go ahead. One more there's chapter chapter 46 that i want you guys to note kaladin says one word to sill and sill basically evaporates and runs like runs to the hills so he hears a name while he's in a dream and mentions it to sill and that name is odium and sill hisses at him and runs away. Any thoughts? Paul, I want your thoughts on this first. This time. Can't we just stop having thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> these have been some big chapters. The the Shalon chapters that we talked about last episode, and now all these Kaladin, everything is changing and completely breaking apart a lot of the assumptions that we've had of the story until now. That this has been a a mind bending, mind blowing set of chapters for sure, for sure. And so, so my actual thoughts about Odium here, I I've said previously this was going way back, like introducing Syl, introducing the little quirks she has about her personality. I've always thought that there's much more to Syl. There's got to be. She's not just a casual windspread. I mean, she can talk. She can. You know, she has some memories. She knows things. And so there's got to be a lot more in her past that we don't know about. And, and no telling. I mean, she's a sprint as far as we know. So maybe that's back to, like, the beginning of time here, right? Like, to whatever created sprint, you know? Like... Mm-hmm. No telling if o- Odium could be the the leader of the Voidbringers or who created the Void. I don't know. It was some really dark, malicious being that that we don't know about. Or honestly, I mean, they wouldn't actually do this, but it could be someone who I don't know said so was ugly or something. Like I could see her <laughs> reacting the same way, you know. But. Yeah, there's a lot with that, or a lot of possibility with that, and we really, I don't know much about that right now. Before before you chime in, Ellie, I can tell you've got a thought or two about this. Um, I just want to highlight Sill's reaction. This is not a Sill reaction. Whenever Kaladin asks Sill a question, Sill's like, oh, I don't know. I might have known it sometime but i don't know and maybe they talk about it for a little bit but as soon as kaladin mentions this name she she hisses at him and runs away that's that is not that's not normal and the the sill aspect of it is i think what scares me the most about it because when we first see the name Odium is is still in Kaladin's dream where he's the storm and or or maybe he actually 
he becomes himself again and then he he meets again the this huge figure that we're assuming at this point is the storm father and the storm father tells him you know odium comes or something like that you know that alone sounds pretty ominous but when sill has this reaction that she does to it that makes me even more scared about what this is just because of like you're talking about paul her connection to the i'll call it the spiritual realm at this point or this kind of unknown of what's going on clearly this has some kind of meaning for her or maybe even a subconscious meaning for her that she's not even aware of i don't know i don't have enough to to really formulate my thoughts on on these yet but odium i don't know it's going to come later and it's going to be bad i think in all honesty if i had to guess i don't think we're going to see anymore about odium for a long time yeah it could be or at least not anything really telling maybe it'll be mentioned or maybe so we'll say it's something she doesn't like but it sounds too big to be shown soon but very interesting indeed all righty so this has been part three. Do we have any closing thoughts on part th- part three of the Wave Kings as a whole? So, so you know me, I I have as usual a soapbox to stand on for my my end of the part. So, I'll, Paul, I should probably let you talk and see if you have any thoughts on part three before I steal the steal the mic. No, for sure. I don't. I don't have anything super pressing. I, I'm super interested to see how storylines might begin to converge. I'm curious to see. I guess this is more looking into part four, but I'm curious to see what's going on with Dalinar during this time and all the stuff there. Also, you, Elliot brought up a ton of things, and we, we talked a lot of things that I'm super curious about, one of which if Yasna is even a real person anymore. <laughs> and, and such, like, I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes from here. Uh, we've gotten, like, one question answered, and we've opened 80 more, so... One thing that I... I, told... one thing that I will highlight real quick. I enjoyed your reaction to the very brief Kaladin Adolin interaction that you were so excited for Kaladin and Adolin to finally like discuss and then when they actually do start having uh conversations later that's what you've been saying you've been looking forward to is the storylines colliding so we're we're starting to see some of that happen and Paul like you said we we've, the scope of the book has kind of been you know here if you're just listening to this and not seeing the 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 video you can't see where my hands are but they're they're kind of somewhat close together here the scope of the book has been not narrow because the scope of this book has been pretty epic but it's been narrow ish we just we just kind of you know open the floodgates and the scope of this story is now gone you know out to here my, my arms are now really wide for you audio listeners that the possibilities are now just endless of where this goes now there's all kinds of questions we're asking now there's all kinds of where are we going to to next i feel like we've just expanded expanded our horizons quite a bit but i did have some common themes that or or one common theme that i thought summarized part three for me and it was a little bit tough actually to to formulate some of this because if you look at the actual length of part three part three was a lot longer than parts one and parts two parts one and parts two took us maybe like 
three or four episodes to get through the entire part each. It then took us like eight episodes to get through part three, maybe not quite that much, but a lot more packed into this, into this part three and a lot more of a journey that we've seen on our characters. But I think where I landed to sum up part three was the idea of, of hidden pasts. I'll say that again, because it's hard to enunciate hidden pasts or, or secrets. We've learned that a lot of our characters have secrets buried in their past. We have Shalon, who's done something rather dark that she's very ashamed of in her past and apparently has a shard blade because there's that. And we know that you know, even in her storyline, Yasin has actually had a few hints of stuff that might be a little bit you know, hidden or dark about her past uh, as well. There's obviously Capsule, who had quite a, a secret that he was hiding. We got his massive betrayal, so he had a very hidden identity, if you will. Then we jump over to the, the Kaladin chapter. Kaladin also had something in his past that he was hiding, maybe not quite as aggressively as Shallan or, or Capsule are, but we learned that, that Kaladin killed a Shardbearer. What, what a huge event, but it's not even something that he talks about with anyone. It's something he almost... You know, doesn't even consider that as as important in his mm. in his, his history. It's just a, an aspect of him that he's kind of buried in his in his past. On top of that, we have all of the Bridgemen and all of their secrets in the past. We're getting more and more hints about Sigzil. Sigzil at first seemed to be just kind of another name in the crew of the Bridgemen. We're learning that he's he's starting to take more and more of a forward role as a character, and maybe there's a lot more to him than we think. We just learned that he's a world singer. We don't know quite what the importance of that is, but another hidden past that he doesn't want to that he doesn't want to talk about. Teft, we actually didn't get to talk about this, but Teft has a hidden past that we learn about. There's a funny moment where Kaladin kind of tricks him into revealing that he's a soldier, that Teft was a soldier in his past. And so again, another hidden past or another secret that's being withheld. And so Coming out of part three, I'm guessing we're going to move on to some other maybe grander, more epic things in, in four and five as we close out this book. But the, the theme for me of three was all these people struggling with their their pasts, their secrets that they're holding, and kind of the other characters starting to find out about those and starting to prod and kind of the interactions between characters of all these these secrets that are starting to come to light. And again, I'm, I'm talking too long by myself on, on, a, on a concept, but that's... That's my takeaway, I think, from this this part three, and I'm really excited to see where we're headed in part four. Ultimately, after all of that, with all of those those hidden paths and secrets that have come to light, I feel like heading forward, it's Shallan who is the one that is going to have to immediately have to face her past. She's the one who's been revealed at this point. She she's failed in stealing the Soulcaster. She looks like she's headed back to her her homeland empty-handed, probably to face whatever dark secrets she has in her past. So not quite sure where Kaladin is headed, not quite sure where some of our other characters are headed yet, but it looks like at least in Shallan's case, her hidden past has caught up with her. Yeah. Do you guys have any quick predictions on where Shallan's going? We discussed a lot what just happened to Shallan last week, but do you have any predictions on what's about to happen in part five when we get there? She's definitely going home, is my guess. She's going to go home, and everyone's going to be upset because they delayed for so long, and now the word is out, and they're going to be in a ton of trouble. So maybe she'll go home and then run away, or maybe she just won't go home and she'll just run away. But she's got to like run away, right? Kind of like 
you know. Does she have any chance with Yasna anymore? Oh man. <laughs> is, I I'm is Yasna, on the tip is Yasna of even there anymore? Was she ever there I'm to begin on... with? Yeah, Yasna's not real. Assuming we're assuming <laughs> Yasna's real, which is assuming a lot right now. Um so I I my thought is no. She doesn't have a chance. That's been made clear. It it seems obvious. It, it seems obvious that she can't have a chance with Yasna anymore. She has to be headed home. What what options are left for her? But I feel like the lesson I've learned from last episode is we can't make a lot of the same assumptions that we've been making previously. And so I don't know that the obvious answer is the obvious answer anymore. Could all of this have been some elaborate test that Yasna has cooked up for her? Maybe. Could, is is Yasna, even Yasna, like, we, like we're joking about? I, who knows? I... I don't know where Shalon is headed. I feel like I, just looking at the facts, could tell you, but then I've learned, I think, not to necessarily trust the facts. So, who knows? She does have a shard blade, so maybe yeah. she takes the the soulcaster by force. Maybe she can't Ooh. can't bear to go home empty-handed at this point. Just starts an all-out war with Lothala. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the Soulcaster ever went missing, it's basically what would happen at this point, as far as I know. So, bring it, you know? You're, you're in the headquarters already, so just pull out your shard blade. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Work some magic. <laughs> I think we can wrap it up there. We've got interludes coming up next next week, followed by part four, and which is back to Dalinar and Kaladin. So be looking forward to that. And thank you for joining me, Elliot and Paul. My pleasure as always. Good stuff.